So we have Toby Voigt from the Detroit Historical Society, David Schaller, who's principal with EduWeb based in St. Paul. We have Wendy Jones with the Minnesota Historical Society and Lisa Fisher with Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia. So they all have very different projects, like I said, and they will be talking about um, what motivated them, the decision to do the project, um, who their target audience was, who their partners were. They're going to talk a little bit about where funding came from, and definitely they're going to talk about challenges they encountered, uh, solutions, and uh, whether or not they would do a project like that again. So, and uh, first of all, we're going to start out with defining what we mean by games, and Dave will do that. Um, he actually wrote a column a few years ago now about games for History Bites, uh, who's a guest columnist. And um, so, what else did I want to say? I think that's it. You know, I'm forgetting something, but anyway, welcome them. We're not going to do questions at the end. I don't think we're going to do one or two questions after each presentation, so the presentation is fresh in your mind. Uh, all right. Thanks for coming to the session. Uh, my name is Dave Schaller from EduWeb, and I'm going to give a quick overview of um, elements of a game, just to be thinking about what makes something a game versus other kinds of interactives, um, and why games, I think, can be so powerful as um, so certainly video games have gotten very popular lately. Um, some people uh, think that's a good thing. Some people think that's a bad thing. I have to credit my son, who was in a high school assembly and had the quick wits to take this picture when the slide came up and, and send it to me. Um, but it's true. The games are, are fun, right? Um, and hopefully don't have some of these side effects like uh, uh, some of these other things do. Um, but what makes games so fun? Um, there's been a lot of academic interest in games in the past uh, 10 years, starting about 10 years ago with a scholar named J uh, James Paul G. at the University of Madison, now in Arizona. Um, Kurt Squire is another uh, scholar looking at this and trying to figure out what, uh, what, how games work and why they're so compelling. Um, so Squire, Squire's quote here that they're situated experiences, so you're in a context uh, which helps create uh, meaning. And you've got these complex problem-solving tasks. And they're designed very carefully to be scaffolded so you're always in that zone of proximal development where it's just hard enough to be um, engrossing, um, not above your skill level, not below. And it just keeps ratcheting up that challenge as you master the gameplay. Um, and what creates those challenges are elements of a game. Um, and there's different ways to slice and dice what those elements are. But I'm just going to quickly go through um, a handful of them here. So the first thing, actions. Players do something, right? That's a good way to start thinking about a game is the player is doing something. They're not just along for the ride. Um, and one thing that makes a game really um, distinctive is that it's always just a few simple things. Um, you're not always doing something new, and you're not always on that learning curve of how does this thing work. You get a couple simple actions, and you do them over and over and over again. Um, so in Monopoly, you roll the dice, you move your token, you buy property. Um, in um, angry birds, you draw back the little bird and, and you fling it. Um, what happens when you fling it? What happens when you land on property? That's defined by the rules of the game, which de um, describes what those actions are and what happens as a consequence of the actions. And what are the relationships between those different components of the game? Now, in a board game, you've got a list of rules here, and you really have to read them and 
absorb them before you start playing um, because they're usually, you know, complicated enough to, um, you know, you're going to get in trouble if you don't. An interesting contrast between board games and, and video games is, you know, video games sometimes come with rules, uh, a rule book, but Angry Birds, you start playing it, there's, you know, you know, drag the bird and let it go. And everything else you have to figure out how to play it. The rules are embedded in the game, and part of the gameplay, part of the challenge, is figuring out the rules, discovering the rules. Because what you're doing is really creating a mental model in your head of the game system. And that's where you're learning about how the game works. Um, so if you create rules that represent your subject matter, then the player really has to actively recreate that model in their head. And that's a really powerful learning experience. When you're playing again, you also have to exercise some skills. So in Angry Birds, you draw back the thing, you're aiming, you're estimating, um, you're calculating in your head all these physics of how it's going to fly and the arc and the speed and, the, and uh, the trajectory. Other games exercise social skills. Um, there's physical skills, obviously, whether it's in a computer game where you've got twitch skills or in sports, obviously, physical skills. So there's all sorts of skills that games can exercise. Uh, and a game without skills is, is not very fun because you've got to bring something to the game that you, can, that you have an ability to, to do. Um, and apply that to the game and, and apply it to the challenges. Equally important is skill is chance. Um, and this is something that's, I think, easy to overlook or, or misunderstand the importance of chance. Um, it encourages players to take risks. It makes the game different every time you play it because it's not, if you do, if you choose A, it's not always going to lead to B. Something might, dip, you know, might play out differently. Um, it alleviates uncertainty or it adds uncertainty and alleviates tedium because there's that element of, of surprise and, and not knowing what's going to happen. And there's a really, very important kind of chance or probabilities, um, risk and reward choices that every, um, every good game has in that it's not just, you know, there's not always a right answer. It's always based on the moment. And you have to analyze at this moment the situation I'm in. I'm ahead, I'm behind, I'm, you know, this or that. What are the odds if I do this versus that? And you're evaluating those probabilities and trying to figure out at this moment what's the best thing to do. It's always a judgment call. And so because you have to keep analyzing the situation you're in at that moment, um, you have to understand it. And again, that's a learning thing. Um, so in Monopoly, at the beginning, uh, you know, you don't want to go to jail in the beginning because you're going to miss out on a chance to buy property. Later on, yeah, jail is not such a bad place to be. So your evaluation of the board changes over the course of the game. And then feedback's important. So whether it's a social game and you're getting so social feedback, or in a computer game, you know, everybody's noticed that there's just lots of dazzling um, graphics to give you feedback because it's really important to know how you're doing in the game because you're always adjusting and calibrating your actions, your choices based on how you're doing. You're trying to, again, figure out how that game works. Um, and to do that, you need feedback about what happened because of the things you've just been doing. So all these things come together to create the gameplay. And it's really important to understand that the gameplay is what the game is about. You could have any subject matter in the world laid on top of it, but if it doesn't represent the gameplay, if the system of the game isn't about that, then the player is not thinking about that because they're thinking about the gameplay. And you want the gameplay to be...
Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Toby Boyd. I'm the Chief Curatorial Officer at the Detroit Historical Society, and um, we're here to talk to, talk to you about our uh, the game that we built um, with Dave Schaller and Edgeweb, and it's called Building Detroit. So, um, uh-oh, I've got the, the map. Okay, oh, okay, good. I just had the spinny, colorful wheel of Microsoft scared me there. Okay, um, the Detroit Historical Society, and I'm trying to do this quick, um, we're a mid-sized museum, um, and, and we're growing. So uh, I came in 2010 to the Historical Society, and at that point we were, we're an umbrella organization that operates two museums in Detroit, the Detroit Historical Museum uh, in Midtown, right next to the DIA, and um, the Dawson Great Lakes Museum on one, it's a, one of our island parks. Um, when I came, they hadn't had a director of education. I originally came as director of education. They hadn't had that in over four years. So basically, all uh, all they were doing for youth um, were 90-minute docent-led tours as a field trip, and that was it. So right before I came, um, they decided that it was time to start thinking bigger um, and do some outreach, because we just didn't have any outreach. So they had written a grant to Community Foundation um, to do a, our first online web-based web-based experience. So when I got in, the, the grant um, was written, and so I was reading through the language of the grant, and these were all the adjectives I pulled out. Fun, it has to be fun, interactive, educational, imaginative, accessible, engaging, online, you know, all those buzzwords we hear. So I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do that does all these things? Aha, we're going to do a game. So um, that's kind of where um, our decision to do a game, and for all the reasons that Dave said, um, you know, the ability to really engross people in the subject matter is uh, kind of why we did it. Now, this is kind of my, my big thing. I knew going into this that um, that I'm, I'm a I'm the kind of museum educator that would much rather like have people do tangible things like tie notes with or tie uh, ropes into knots than I don't know use some flashy touchscreen in a gallery. You know, for the practical reasons, this is a heck of a lot less maintenance, but also because it can be just as engaging. Technology doesn't you don't have to use technology for technology's sake. So that's why I love this quote. You know, learners do not learn directly from technology; they learn from thinking about what they're doing. And so, with that in mind, you know. It's, we went out on a bid process to find a, somebody who could do this game. And it was really important to me that we had somebody who understood learning and how games can be used as a tool. And um, these are two examples of actual uh, phrases that came back from two of our bids. And uh, the first company is, is a um, technology-based startup in the Detroit area, and their adjectives they used were complete immersions of the senses, holds the hands of the audience member, captivates the audience, and they had this demo game that was like super all flash, but there was very little substance there. Um, and then Web Company B, which ended up being EduWeb, had the language I was looking for. You know, online learning experience informed by learning theory, interested in meaningful interactions with content, actively constructing knowledge. And so um, with those in mind, that's why one of the reasons why we went EduWeb is because they have the, um, the understanding of gaming and gaming theory. So I think that's kind of key. If you're looking at doing a web project, make sure that you have a partner that understands this. Otherwise, you know, technology for technology's sake can be pretty useless if you don't have the core content and the core gameplay behind it. Um, so that's... Uh, that's kind of it. I just do want to say something really quick about budget, and I'm sure a lot of you kind of have in your mind, this is great that you guys did, the, did this great game, and um, 
how did you get the money to do it? I'll tell you the game we're about to share with you costs just the cost of building the game and cost about $75,000. But, and I know that's like, whoa, but I'm going to tell you, gaming online is really pardon the sexy to funders right now. <laughs> and um, if you have a really good proposal, I mean, we just got our funding from the Community Foundation for Southeastern Michigan. I mean, it wasn't some big federal grant. It was just a local that was looking really immersed. So there are a lot of um, probably potential funders in your area that would be very interested in getting involved in this because it's outreach, it's community engagement, all those buzzwords. And if you have more questions about budget and stuff like that, I'll be glad to talk to you afterwards. But I did want to put a little nod in that. So just because it's technology and it's flashy doesn't mean it's out of your reach. So. Okay, that's a good question, and we'll get into that when we kind of, we're going to kind of walk through the game and we're going to talk through the development process. Um, I think one of the things I did want to stress is, yes, we're a mid-sized museum, but when it came down to building this game, I was a team of one at my society, so I did everything. I wrote all the content. I did all of this, and so it's possible. You don't need to have a big museum. You don't need to have a huge team working on things. It basically immersed my life for a six-month period. Like, I, I was home writing text cues at night, but I would do it again in a heartbeat and we'll, we'll get there. But let us talk a little bit about, the, show you the game, and as we demo the game, we're going to talk through the development process and kind of answer a lot of the questions. So you'll get to see the game, but we're not really here to show you the game because you can go on the website and play it when we're done, but we want to talk more about the process. So I'm going to actually hand it over to Dave to kind of lead the development process. I will say that, that the partnership between me, the society, and EduWeb we're so immersed in developing this game. So he and I kind of work very closely together, which is why we're presenting together on the development of this. So, so at the start of it, we had um, the idea, kind of the goals. Uh, look at Detroit history from 1750 to 1900. So, uh, so you know, 150 years in one online game experience. So, and that came from the grant. It's related to an exhibit we have on the first 200 years of Detroit's history, which is before Detroit, before Detroit, sorry, they're recording this session, so I'm going to have to talk in the mic. So, um, 200 years of Detroit's history before we became the Motor City. So that's a, kind of a tall order when you're talking about a game. How do you cover 200 years of history? So that was it. And so it was based on one of our exhibits, and we knew that it had to be for elementary students right. and teachers. So. so third and fourth grade specifically, and that's when they studied Detroit history in school. Um, so... Um, so we looked at the standards uh, for third grade uh, history and, you know, a lot of great stuff in there, but Detroit went through a lot of changes in that time, um, from French to British to American, um, <laughs> and just, you know, people, places, a lot of themes, a lot of stuff, um, very hard to, you know, what are the, you know, what are the three actions that the player has in this game when you've got this huge variety of, of history in that time span. So that was kind of uh, depressing to look through those and try to think what kind of game we could do with that. Um, but then we turn the page, and there's the uh, next page. Sorry, this is confusing. There, there we go. Turn the page. And there was the economic standards, and economics is a system of rules. Um, and there are some very uh, natural actions that a player in a game, in an economics game, can make, um, where they have agency, um, but there's um, skills, there's probabilities, there's, there's chance involved. So um, we latched onto that and made um, the game with an economics system underlying it, uh, a model of, of market economics, 
Um, and from that, it was kind of a... Uh, um, sorry. Uh, haven't used PowerPoint in a few years. Um, making a... Uh, making a game about making a living, a role play where you are a resident of Detroit and you have to make a living. So those kind of came out very naturally once we looked at economics as our core game engine, um, realizing that we could then populate it with, you know, a great deal of content about Detroit history. And we also knew that it was a great way to tie in uh, this 150-year history if we did it through economics as opposed to really history content. And you'll see the game does have a lot of history content in it. Um, but we knew economics would be a great vehicle to cover this 150-year history. So we finally, well, we came up with an idea of covering 150 years, but there's one family where five generations, so there's continuity, but, um, a lot of change, and you've got kind of the same structure of gameplay, but your choices are expanding tremendously over the course of that time because of the way the city grew. So we had a great idea for our core structure. Yes, market economy, you know, and, and, and get that started. And so as... Um, as we started, we, we landed on five different, you know, it's five generations of one family, so we picked five different time periods in Detroit's history, the first in 1750. So we're like, great, you know, risk and reward, economics, you know, and then we realized that French Detroit did not operate. Um, they operated for a, for a more of a feudal system. It wasn't a market economy system, so one of our first challenges was trying to figure out how to plug a completely different economic system into this game, so... So we, um, one of the ongoing challenges, I think, with, I mean, with lots of projects, but certainly with games, is, is trying to find the right balance between um, um, verisimilitude to the, to the true depth and variety of the subject and the simplification you need for a game. Um, so this is one of the big challenges we had on that, um, trying to figure out how to shape this semi-feudal French system into our game structure where you're making choices of... Um, how you want to, in this case, uh, grow your crops. So we modified it um, so you aren't you aren't making money. You, you grow stuff. You have to hand most of it over to the senor, um, and you get to keep a little bit for yourself. If you have any left over, you can trade it to the Indians. So it it's set up as a kind of the first level of the game. It was it's a little weird, frankly, because it's not kind of a perfect intro tutorial level because everything changes. Not everything changes, but the face of things change a lot once you move on to the next levels. Um, but the French system was so dramatically different that we had to modify that. And by no means do we represent it in any kind of accurate depth, but the idea that this is not a market economy, you're growing stuff primarily for the senor who owns the land um, is represented. All right. Um, the other just kind of overarching, we're going to kind of talk through the gameplay. One of the overarching challenges we had going on was this kind of Historical accuracy versus good gameplay, and, the, and I use the term versus. Sorry, I use the term versus very loosely because they aren't mutually exclusive. But um, you know, coming up with we are you know knew we were going to do illustrations. Um, we, we made some decisions about. Um, and this is actually um, an older screen cap, but the game actually looks different. But um, the view is always this kind of bird's eye view of a specific part of Detroit, and you can see in the different how it changed over time in all these generations. Um, but we knew we're like, look, I don't, I, I'm doing this by myself. I don't have time to see if you know Joe Smith's tavern is really on that corner, or if that's an accurate street, or 
Um, you know, so we did take some liberty. I talked it through with an advisory board of historians and teachers and our curators on our staff and said, look, here's the deal. We're going to have to, we're going to make nothing in this game is historically inaccurate, but because it's a game and it's for kids, we have to simplify the history a little bit. And everybody seemed to be comfortable about it. And only, um, one, uh, amateur historical organization, um, French Detroit got really mad at kind of some of our treatment of the French Detroit period. Although, it's not historically inaccurate, but I guess there's a few too many stereotypes in there. But other than that, um, the, it, it really does seem to to work for the gameplay. So, oh, okay, and um, some of the other channel. Okay, so you start out as this couple that comes over from France, and then um, when you play around in French Detroit, and then you kind of level up to the next. In this case, 1820s or 1790s. Sorry, well, 1820s is the third generation. And you, you play as one of the children from, and so we, it's a random choice on what child you level up to, um, and it can be a male or a female. And so that was another thing that we can, we're like, okay, great. So, you know, half the time you're going to level up as a female here, um, which is great, except for the fact that there, are, in 1790s, there weren't a lot of career choices. It's an economic based game. You can't be a tavern keeper. You can't do this because you're a woman. And so, um, so we made some decisions about how we were going to do this. So one of your first, uh, things you have to do when you level up, um, is choose a, choose a spouse. And, um, so we decided the gameplay would be you aren't playing as an individual character, you're playing as a married unit, really. So that kind of opened it up some more doors for career. So you choose a spouse. And I love this when I, when I demo this game, I'm like, okay, look, it's an economics-based game. So, you know, use your choices. You can see how much money they're worth and what careers they have. And that's how you choose your husband. I'm going to tell you, it's impossible in a matrix for gameplay to factor in love. You just cannot do it. So you got to make some, you know, it's all economics choices. And then you choose a husband, and then you can choose a career. You can either stay at the career your parents, you know, inherited from your parents, or you can choose your husband's career, or you can choose a third career altogether. So the first kind of choice you have is to choose what you're going to do. So, so this, this screen is kind of the heart, the core gameplay where uh, once you've chosen your occupation, um, you have a series of choices of how do you want to run that this year. Um, and it's really structured in terms of that idea of risk and reward. So there is high quality goods or services and low quality goods and services. There is high quality location, you know, central location or outskirts location. Um, and there is high prices, low prices. So you make those choices, um, decide kind of how you want to run your business for that year or, or run your occupation. And, um, and then see the results. And so it works very nicely as clear-cut choices for the player, for third-grade players to read, you know, these little text blurbs and understand what they're weighing, um, the choice they're weighing. But it did mean we had a very um, strong, rigid structure that we had to fit all of our content into. Um, and sometimes for some of the occupations, it was just a natural fit. And, Sometimes over 150 years with, I don't know how many occupations we have, it's 20 or 30, um, sometimes you got to do a little massaging to get those to fit. Yep. I, I will say that, okay, like, it's kind of hard to see what this game's about. This is my elevator speech about this game. It's like Oregon Trail and choose your own adventure. So it's kind of both, you know. I mean, every choice that you make, like when you you choose where you're going to be, you choose your career. In this case, this is a screen cap if you're a pharmacist. And you, um, after you choose your location, you have to choose, um, you have a couple inputs on what type of materials you want to buy to make your medicines. This is one of the choices. So every time 
oh, well, the last one was one of the choices. So then you, you kind of make your choices, and then the last screen is you have to set your prices. Are you going to go high or lower? About the same. So um, each choice you make has um, different outcomes, and it's built on this matrix of probabilities, and you should see these Excel spreadsheets that I, we had to write with, because every choice you make has two different outcomes. So you're doing six choice, 12 different options of choices for each round, and each of those 12 options have two outcomes. So, um, so I was doing, this is what I was doing. These are, these spreadsheets are so gigantically large. When I printed out one to, to do it, it took up an entire wall and that, um, to make it even readable. So every, every choice you have, this is how it's like choose your own adventure. If you choose the top chemicals, most likely your, your, um, which you'll see in a second, your result is going to be great. Your customers are happy. Your medicines work. Um, and there's a probability that you're going to get that, but there's also a probability of, you know, you couldn't sell, you didn't make money. So um, every choice has, and this is where kind of the, the chance and the risk and reward comes in, is that you can play this game a billion times and never have the same outcome. I think after a billion, you might be serving to yourself. Okay, all right, sorry. Wandering into hyperbole there. <laughs> um, because you, every level you, you level up as one of the children you were raising in the previous level, we, we added this element where you decide how to manage your children um, where to put them to, you want to put them to work, put, uh, send them to school, tutor them, that kind of thing. Um, so you drag them around and, and drop them on different places there to represent what they'll be doing. Um, and this also is a risk and reward. You know, you want to put all, you know, you want to, um, because if you send them to school or tutoring, that's going to cost you money, um, versus having them work in your, in your shop or whatever, because that'll boost your money a little bit. Um, but you, um, have to think about, do you want to spread the, the benefits across to all the kids, give them all education or training or something, um, because, you know, you put all your resources into one, well, they might not make it. Yes, yeah. And you know what, we talked about, we, this was one of the things that, believe it or not, this economics-based game, this screen you're seeing right now is probably one of the biggest controversial things we had to deal with, is that um, in addition to, well, through this game and for the economics side of the game, not only are you getting direct feedback on the choices you make, but there are certain things that can pop up at any time they're outside of your control. Like, um, you know, you can decide to cheap out and, you know, maybe, you know, make people unhappy, but there's a chance in this matrix that there could be an economic panic that just falls, oh, economic panic this year, you lost 30% of, we got two minutes, 30% of your um, stuff. But the um, the kids dying, that's another one of those outside of your control. And, um, you know, board members are just like, Kids can't die for other kids. That's terrifying. But the kids, when we tested this, it's one of their favorite parts. And they, they're like, oh, look at the little tombstone. And, you know, so, I mean, and it's true. And, and, and even when we built that up, the earlier, in regards to the probability, the earlier you are in the game, the, the better chance your kids aren't going to survive to adulthood. When you get to the end, because of modern medicine, you know, there's less of a probability their children are going to die. So we did kind of put all those thoughts into this. So, okay. Last but not least, at the end of, there's, Four rounds in each level, so you kind of make these choices four times, and then at the end, at the end of every level, I had to put some history back in here, right? So at the end, we have um, little kind of newspaper headlines that kind of put the history context back in there, and so we just kind of like little blurb about what was going on in the city at this time, and cute little funny headlines. I mean, everybody thought Detroit was a swamp, so um, that's why it wasn't settled as early as say um, Ohio. So you know, we kind of let kids know that, as well as getting kind of the feedback about how you did in the level. And then last but not least, okay, this was the, okay, um, the other thing we said, we said is like, this is great that we're making this economic space game, but we certainly don't want it to be whoever dies with the most or ends the game with the most money wins. It's not about 
it is about making money, but we wanted it to be more than that. We wanted it to be about building Detroit. So in addition to earning money, you earn city building points, and at the end, you're forced to make a decision um, to be a philanthropist. And of course, I had to put that, you can build a museum in there, and I always choose that. But even if you die, even if you end the game and you're broke, you still have a choice. You can donate your family papers to the Detroit Historical Society. So, so, okay. We would do this again in a heartbeat, and we're planning on doing it. This was our pilot uh, program, and um, and it's great. So, you can teachers like it. Teachers like it. Kids <laughs> like it. Surprisingly, high school kids like it a lot too, and adults like it. So it's a fun game for everybody to play. Um, you can go to DetroitHistorical.org, and it's right on our homepage if you want to play the game. It's free. It also has a timeline, a historical timeline, and a full curriculum. So, that's a good point. It takes um, we when we tested it out because it's five round. It takes about thirty minutes for kids to go through it, and we knew that could be a barrier in the classroom. So we built in a way where after each level, kids can. Um, we didn't want to have a login where kids had to give us personal information so they could save their progress in a game if they wanted to play it over multiple times because we know that's troublesome. So we built in a mechanism where at the end you can kind of get one of those old-fashioned like word and number codes and you write that down. And when you go back in at the beginning of the game, you can either start a new game or enter your code and pick up where you left off. So. Um, I haven't been as vigilant in monitoring that as right now a lot of my, I know that it's getting a lot of visitation because I get a lot of phone calls about it and a lot of teachers are really interested in using it, but most of that, my data right now is anecdotal, but I, I need to do a better job. So. Okay. We'll do the question while they're getting set up. I have that turned the right way? Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Wendy Jones. Can you all hear me? Okay. I'm uh, from the Minnesota Historical Society, where I'm the director for museum education and lifelong learning. And um, just to start off, why did we do this crazy project called Play the Past? Uh, it all comes back to mission. And uh, the mission of the Minnesota Historical Society is to use the power of history to transform lives. And that's a lovely glamour shot of the Minnesota History Center, which I hope will inspire all of you to come to AASLH next year in Minneapolis, St. Paul. So please come, a little plug there for next year's AASLH. So um, 
there's been talk of adjectives before, as uh, Toby mentioned, the adjectives she was looking for. Uh, the, the path to transformation, you know, the path for all of us in fulfilling our missions, uh, is, is really paved with a lot of adjectives like this. That the experiences that we create for uh, different audiences that we serve, we want them to be relevant, engaging, compelling, interesting. So, you know, th these are the adjectives that we look for. Um, so, in fulfilling our mission with these adjectives for a specific audience, um, the experience um, that these adjectives are connected to really is very different depending on which audience it is that you're targeting. And so we specifically targeted uh, fourth through sixth graders on field trips and their teachers. So uh, it was a fairly ambitious audience. Um, and in targeting that specific audience to fulfill our mission, we asked ourselves this question. So if we really want to deliver on our mission in the future, if we want to be relevant, vital educational partners, not just today, but tomorrow in the future, how do we creatively engage 21st century learners today? And 21st century learners are today's kids. Um, it's a, a unique generation that has always had digital uh, media in their, their lives. So, so this was sort of the overarching question that has informed a lot of our work in the museum, uh, not just for this project, but many other projects. So, so what you see today, Play the Past, is uh, one component of a larger initiative to think about the future of our relevance in the field of education. So Play the Past uh, was developed uh, initially, it, well, it's launching this fall, um, and uh, developed in conjunction with a new exhibit at the Minnesota History Center called Then, Now, Wow. So the, the content for the program has kind of been pulled from that exhibit. So I will, instead of uh, talking, I will show you what Play the Past is. So um, let us... Make sure the vo be prepared. I don't know what the volume is. Okay, that's nothing. <laughs> Let's try this. Society opened Then Now Wow, an exhibit that explores the regions and cultures of Minnesota and is specifically geared toward the student field trip audience. Expanding on its tradition of producing nationally recognized innovative exhibits with hands-on interactives and rich multimedia environments. She set the table, you know, very fancy. The Society is introducing a new experience called Play the Past. Dude, you know we can actually trade items? Designed to seamlessly connect the museum to the classroom. Oh, oh, awesome! And facilitate personalized learning experiences. And then you talk about what you learned, and then it'll save it. Students can explore the exhibit with an iPod touch. Put it in the center, and it'll take the picture. In each section, students can go on quests. <laughs> the iPod is their tool to help explore uncover stories, solve problems, and collect items along the way. Um, it gives you 10 cents for each time you get to the correct gift. Everything the students collect in the exhibit is assembled into a digital backpack 
and sent back to the classroom, where teachers and students can dig deeper and create projects based on their museum experience. And then you find your friend and then you go. Throughout the development process, the society is prototyping and testing with students, teachers, and parents to continually inform and refine the experience. Play the Past is a national model that will redefine the field trip experience for the 21st century learner. Okay, a little snappy music there, get you going this morning. Um, so you can see it's, it's designed to be an experience done in a physical environment, um, uh, developed to physically interact with the, the space. And uh, we've, we've used three different hubs within that exhibit to launch the, the project, which I, I'll talk about later. It's, it's really hard to develop good games. So think small. Um, and so instead of having uh, the game being able to be played everywhere in the exhibit, we really found that for now, we needed to focus on doing a few things really well. So the three hubs are the iron mine, um, the, the sod house, and the fur trade section. Then Now Wow is kind of a big overview of Minnesota history of its regions and, and cultures over time. Um, so one of the questions that we were asked to think about for this session is, well, why a game and why technology? And uh, in, in thinking about that and answering that question, it, the, both questions I think can be answered with the same uh, answers, and it's audience and outcomes. And uh, when we thought about the, the audience for this, again, going back to 21st century learners, uh, really thinking about what the characteristics are of 21st century engagement. You know, what does it take to engage these, these learners? And, um, you know, this is not that much different from kids throughout most of history, but it's a little more uh, focus on the, the impact of our digital culture. So, you know, these are kids who are used to receiving information really, really fast, that uh, uh, they prefer graphics and sound over in video before text. Uh, they're very sophisticated in um, their, their use of uh, videos and graphics. They like to parallel process and, and multitask. They prefer random access. Think of hypertext and the web, that it's not a linear experience. It's something that happens, uh, uh, you, you can access things randomly. Um, they're, they're really networked. Uh, great users of social media um, really like to collaborate and uh, thrive on instant gratification, frequent rewards, the impact of video gaming, as, as David talked about uh, the, the, how, how games work. And, and who doesn't prefer games over serious work? So, uh, so we really thought about some of these uh, characteristics of 21st century engagement and how not only the design of this exhibit, but how this experience could work to engage these learners. Um, so that, that, that's one reason why we use both a game uh, format and technology. And the other thing is the outcomes, that you know, we really wanted to create an experience that helped to develop 21st century skills, um, particularly the four C's, uh, critical thinking and problem solving, creativity, collaboration, and communication. That it's not just enough to learn uh, the content, of, of the, the stories of Minnesota's past, but what do you do with that? How do you develop skills through your engagement with that? So um, 
the technology also really opened up a lot of opportunities for us to think about how we connect the field trip experience to the classroom experience. Because I think historically, field trips are often sort of these wasted opportunities. When the, the, the field trip is done, it's done. And um, uh, we did a lot of front-end research in how teachers used field trips and what they wanted from us for field trips. And they were really looking for other ways to um, uh, demonstrate the value of field trips as these immersive learning experiences to their administration. And uh, the more they could uh, articulate these connections back to the classroom in very tangible ways, um, that that was really valuable to them. So a key element of, of Play the Past it, are these digital backpacks. So each kid gets a personalized, uh, they, 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 when, they, when they start playing the game, they create an account, uh, a personal account, and everything that they do is collected into this online backpack. And so the teacher gets to see what every single kid did during their field trip visit. So here's a class. I think this is Capitol Hill Magnet School, uh, which uh, uh, is part of the, the, the starting the game. The kids take a picture of themselves to uh, create their account. And then uh, an individual backpack might look something like this, where um, you can see uh, the different uh, hubs that the students went to, how far they got in those hubs. But then also, there's Amelia's collection down there. What were the specific digital uh, artifacts that she collected as part of playing the game? And then, um, not only that, but then you can click on that and go see that item in the collections of the Minnesota Historical Society. And then there are additional resources for further research. Um, there's also the tab there for other artifacts that the student uh, encountered throughout their um, field trip to the History Center, but may not have been something that they actually collected as part of their personal experience. So you, you've got this little uh, personal learning trail in the digital backpack of what the kid was interested in, what they did, what they achieved, what they collected. And then we've provided the, the historical context and the connections to our collections and to additional research for um, the, the teachers to have the kids continue investigating uh, Minnesota history and continue building on their physical field trip experience. And the teachers that we've worked with are really jazzed <laughs> about this. So this has been a really successful feature of the game. So uh, as far as partners are concerned, um, a lot. The more partners you can bring in, the, the, the better, um, both internal and external. So this, this project has uh, forced us to work in an entirely new way, that departments have been collaborating and working together in ways that we previously hadn't done. Um, we've been working with external um, teachers as core partners throughout this, this process and uh, with game designers and uh, other experts in the, the field. So both internally and, and externally, I think even just trying developing a game, uh, on no matter what scale it is, that it creates a, a really um, uh, exciting uh, creative internal uh, partnership that can yield some other positive outcomes. 
One of our key partners, our external partners, were the folks at the Games Learning and Society Group at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And we're actually using this uh, platform that they created called ARIS, which stands for Augmented Reality for Interactive Storytelling. This is my time to plug ARIS because it's free, it's open source, and it's super easy to use. So it has um, a really easy editor interface, so you don't have to be a computer programmer to develop a mobile game. You, you can use the, the editor that they've created. Um, the value of our partnership with them is that they did back-end coding on stuff for things that the, the tool couldn't do previously. Our value to them is that we got to test their stuff with thousands of kids. And we pulled down their server a few times, so <laughs> which was important for them to, to learn. Um, so they get real life application for the stuff that they're studying and that they're, they're researching. So think about the assets that you bring to other uh, educational institutions or organizations where, where you got people coming through your doors all day. You're, you're a great uh, testing ground. For, um, for people who are doing this kind of research. And um, don't, don't limit yourself to being local either. We're in St. Paul, they're in Madison, but through the magic of uh, Google Hangout, <laughs> we have weekly team meetings with them. So uh, that's our project manager down, manager down on the right there, Jennifer Sly, meeting with uh, David and Phil from uh, UW-Madison. And um, it, it's just really uh, also another outcome of this is getting us to think differently about how we, we do our, our work. So um, what, what are the great successes of, of this project? Um, what do we feel like we've done really well? One thing is the, the iterative design. We started with cardboard and um, QR codes that we just put up. And uh, eventually we built the exhibit. And um, throughout this whole process, the, the design has been something called rapid prototyping. We put stuff out there. We try it with kids. We see it doesn't work. We try something else. So um, don't get too hung up on being perfect. You just have to put stuff out there and try it with your, your audience. And the, the nice thing about Eris is that you can do that. We would sometimes change things uh, with, with the same school group. Like one class would come through and try it, and oh, that didn't work. Quick, change it, and then uh, try it again with uh, um, the next class that would come through. The orientation and check-in process, this is where we spend a lot of our energy. You have to create these individual accounts for each uh, student. We wanted to get that process down to 10 minutes. How do you get the iPods in the hands of the kids, get their accounts set up, and get them playing the game? And I, again, we refined that um, over and over, and we, we finally nailed it. And uh, I think we feel really good about how we've, we've got that set up. Um, collecting an inventory, again, that bringing back to the, the classroom. Uh, these kids are bumping phones here. That's a feature of the fur trade section, where they um, you actually trade items in the fur trade section by bumping your phones that, that you've collected. And so the, one of the nice things about Eris is that it has this inventory function so that you can uh, collect items and go back to them later. And Eris, again, I should say, is a location-based uh, software. So um, it uses GPS when you're outside. And if you're inside, you can use QR codes. Um, and then the physical interaction with the exhibit. This has been really challenging and something that I think 
we've learned a lot about and have um, come a long ways with. We didn't want kids to just to be looking at their phones in the, the exhibit. We wanted them to use this tool to it, interact with their physical surroundings. And so the, the kind of back and forth between physical space and virtual space is, is something that we, we really spent a lot of time testing and trying out. And I think we've come to some really good places with that, particularly in the iron mine, where um, you can see uh, direct feedback from the physical dangerous tasks that you do in the iron mine. You see um, how much money you learn, uh, earn or when um, you, know, you die because you, um, you, know, you put the dynamite in incorrectly in the mine and killed all of your coworkers. So again, kids love death and destruction. <laughs> <laughs> um, and another thing that we're, we're getting better at is just feedback. That you have to. One of the elements of games is you have to give constant feedback, and that's really important to remember. So just even figuring out how to show different levels uh, in the game as you complete them was, was something that took us a while to, to get there. But I think we're um, rapidly improving on that. Challenges. Okay, I'll just tell you right now. Game design is hard. It's super hard. And good game design is even harder. And uh, so this is a, a little uh, storyboard that we did at the beginning of the project where we thought, wow, we are geniuses. We figured out how to do this really fun thing in the streetcar in the Then Now Wow exhibit. And we tried it with the kids. And you know when a kid says to you, do I have to keep doing this? Then you know, like, OK, that stinks. <laughs> We had a lot of moments like that where the, the kids will tell you right away that's dumb or, you know, or they'll really be into it. And it, it's a different way of thinking. I mean, I think we're all really good at developing, engaging educational experiences, but game design is a different skill set. And that's something that was, um, that, that we recognized really quickly that we didn't have. And where could we find that? How could we start to develop our own skill sets? So it's hard, and it really needs to be, um, your, your experiences that you create need to be integrated. So one thing that we, we tried that we failed at miserably was how do you involve the, the chaperone in the, the game? So you've got kids on field trips, you've got parent chaperones, and um, uh, so we tried one thing where we had chaperones had these cards, and they could give kids badges as they went around and did the game. And we thought, well, let's have them give badges for their behavior. Like, oh, we saw you collaborating. So, you know, you get this extra reward for collaborating. And uh, what happened is that, you know, the kids would be into the game, and then some chaperone would come along and bug them. And, uh, you know, they, they, they would be really annoyed by that. Or the, the kids would really want to get this badge, and the chaperone would not recognize that that kid was collaborating. We had some kids say, I worked really hard to work with my classmates and he never gave me a badge. You know, so it just, there was too much of a disconnect in how this experience happened. It wasn't organic to the, the game. So really think about how the experiences work together. And also, um, graphic design. <laughs> there you go. You need, it's dangerous work. You need to show, not tell. 
we learned that really quickly too and that that we have graphic design expertise on our staff but not really graphic design expertise for game you know for mobile games and so this has been an area of growth for us too in learning how important that is in the experience to have really clear instructions and really good graphics to communicate um, other challenges, just like um, uh, Toby and David said, we looked at the state standards and how do you integrate that, critical thinking, history content's got to be fun, you have to have an emotional response. So there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that uh, was floating around there that we really had to um, think about. And so um, evaluation, uh, just to, to let you know, um, that we just hired audience viewpoints to do a summative evaluation for us. We've been doing evaluation throughout, uh, which has informed the, the design of the project. Um, but the final report, are we really meeting the outcomes that we intended to, should be out in the spring of 2014. And we look forward to sharing that with people. Uh, we may fail miserably, but that's you have to take risks. So uh, either way, we hope that the greater community will learn from our experiences. So how much did this cost? Okay, seventy-five thousand—that's nothing. <laughs> um, we have been very fortunate that um, we received a national leadership grant from IMLS, which was a little under a half million dollars. Um, we have um, a fund in Minnesota uh, through the Legacy Amendment, um, and uh, we've received significant amount of funding from that to match that grant. And we've received financial support from the Target Foundation, and Target is headquartered in the, the Twin Cities. And I would say this is such an expensive project because we're really looking very holistically at our overall field trip experience and our service to K-12 audiences. We're thinking really big with this. But if you want to just use Eris to develop a game, you can do that for free. Um, so I, just to remind you about that. So moving next, if we get more money, if our evaluation is good, um, we our plan is to eventually expand this to the other exhibits at the History Center and to our 26 different historic sites and museums around the state so that uh, all of Minnesota is about playing with, with the past. And we've also started taking um, components of this and spinning it off into other products, like uh, summer camps. So we've been developing, we've done two seasons now of gaming camps, where we use Eris uh, to have kids come in and develop history games. And again, there's, there's no cost to using Eris, so this is a very low-cost program. Um, and, and some great uh, outcomes with these camps that it attracts a certain kid that is, is, is sort of afraid of technology straight on. So the kid who wouldn't go to the science museum to take a technology class but is really attracted by the stories of history and then gets engaged in the STEM components and technology through that. And I'll just uh, close in saying that um, design, playing games takes a lot of skill, and designing games takes a lot of skill, too. It's hard. This, this is a, a brainstorming session from those kids, from those teenagers. But um, that's part of like my greater master scheme, is how do I start developing these skill sets to support um, our educational programs in the museum. And so this is also a path of engagement for these, these teenagers to become involved with the Minnesota Historical Society and develop skills that come back to, to benefit our work as well. 
And for all of you, if you need other resources, I, I found these to be really helpful. The Institute of Play, which started the Quest to Learn School, um, has a lot of great resources about games and learning. Um, the New Media Consortium is always good to go to to see about the trends, like what's next on the horizon, their horizon reports. And I, I recommend checking out either of these conferences. The Games Learning and Society Conference in Madison is an annual conference. It's great because there are uh, both uh, uh, K-12 educators and uh, college academics there. And then Meaningful Play, which is every other year, and that's in Lansing, Michigan, uh, it takes on really uh, it's about games that, that matter, that make a difference. So you see some really interesting projects of how people are trying to solve world problems through games. And uh, that's the website. So thank you. Yeah. No, we haven't. We haven't lost any of the iPods or none of them has been damaged yet. So we've been, we, that was a fear that we had. And right now we're distributing iPods as part of the experience, but we're transitioning to BYOD. So the, the plan is that any school that brings its own devices could use the iPods. Okay. How about you? Guided experience in the museum. So we've always um, designed the exhibit so that uh, uh, school groups and all visitors explore them on their own. And, um, but, but we have uh, paid professional interpreter staff within those exhibits uh, who provide facilitation and additional programming. So everything from like history a la carte, which is the, you know, the sacrificial objects <laughs> kids get to touch, to history player characters and other facilitation of the exhibit experience. So um, they, they've been very uh, open and interested in this, it's not replacing them. It's another component of the of the learning environment that they are charged with uh, helping to facilitate. So it's been pretty easy that way. Yep. Oh, okay. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Lisa Fisher, and I'm director of the Digital History Center at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. And I'm going to be giving an overview of a series of games that we've developed called RevQuest Save the Revolution. Our most recent game is RevQuest The Black Chamber, so I'm going to kind of use that as our model um, to sort of take you through um, how the games work and then talk about them and the challenges and uh, some of the other considerations that have gone into them. Um, as I said, this is a series of games, so this is our third game, so to answer Tim's question that he asked earlier, yes, we would do it again, we've already done it three times. Um, the RevQuest uh, Save the Revolution is a series of online, on-site, online, alternate reality games. Um, so they begin online, uh, they're all based on an actual event and real people, um, so first and foremost they're educational, but they're also designed to be fun and engaging and immersive. Um, so they each begin online, they come then, the, the story then continues when uh, guests, um, and we call players questers, when they arrive on site then they're immersed in the 18th century, and then they, after they finish the game, they can then go back online and continue uh, there. Um, so RevQuest the Black Chambers is our um, third game and is currently running on site. Um, and it is set in the year 1781, and just to set the story, I'm going to show you our, our little video trailer.
If you are truly a friend to your country, I have a way for you to prove it. I need your help. Our enemies grow stronger day by day. They have become much cleverer in the design of the codes they use to transmit their secret messages and information. Their spying rings grow larger and larger. I need you to join me, to join my black chamber. So, um, is it so? Kids and, and their families are being recruited to be spies. A black chamber in the 18th century was a counter-espionage team. So they were dedicated to capturing um, the, the ciphered messages from the enemy and trying to decipher them. And so we know both sides during the American Revolution had these black chambers. Um, so when they begin online, the kids are recruited by um, this mysterious figure, the Screen Master, to join uh, his black chamber. Um, and it's an interactive game in terms of dialogue. Um, so you can have a conversation and you the, the questers choose different responses and they're given tasks. And as they solve the different tasks, then more sites in the town unlock and they have to follow through this mission. Now we have some of the, the figures in the game um, help you solve the answers. Others may not be able to help you, but each are designed to be teaching you as you go. So you may have to have interactions with characters to see whether they can help you, but they're at the same time then telling you about the historical context and helping to um, teach you a little bit more about the American Revolution and the period in which you're um, being immersed. Um, then it's a single storyline, so I don't want to give too much away about the game. Uh, that's always one of the challenges about talking about games is to try to, to um, tell how much you should give your audience and then not want to spoil too much should they want to actually play the game themselves. Um, but the, in the end of the, the pre-visit component of the website, they, the questers will find a document, and then when they come on site, they're actually given a paper uh, copy that then they use in solving the game on site. So it's a sort of a single narrative. So that one of the things that we were really interested in was trying to, to encourage on-site visitation. So really, you have to come on site to keep, the, keep going. So then once you arrive on site, um, you will um, watch a video, a little bit longer version of the video that we just saw, which sets the stage. Uh, and then you meet with characters who will further um, explain the story, will give you information. You'll then also have to locate things around the historic area and solve clues, decipher messages, um, visit sites. So it's all about creating a new way to explore Colonial Williamsburg's revolutionary city. Um, the as they work and are solving the different clues, um, it's meant to be a flexible experience. So there are a few um, timed interactions and, and guests have that schedule uh, in their packet of information. But yet at the same time, they can stop and start anytime they want. They can visit other sites along the way. So we wanted to make something that um, could be as flexible as possible, but could be integrated into the visit and it wasn't something that had to be played straight through as they were going along. We also wanted to integrate technology. Um, so we've gone with using texting uh, as a way of further advancing the game. So in the instructions after certain, uh, the questers have acquired certain information, they then text in the answers and they get a response back that then gives them kind of more information about what to do next or um, where, to, where to go after that. Uh, we chose texting because we wanted it to be sort of the lowest threshold in terms of the technology. Um, we didn't want people to have to have a smartphone and be able to use an app. Um, it's also 
um, perfectly fine to play without texting. We have people around the historic area that have the answer, so um, you don't have to have any technology at all, but we found that the technology is quite appealing to be able to include that. Um, there's also a, a small um, help mobile web helper site um, for people that do have web-enabled phones, but um, again, that's not critical to playing the game. Once they finish the experience and they find out uh, where to go to attend a secret resolution, um, which further explains the experience, um, and then they're given a token of appreciation, which is a coin for having uh, solved the game. Um, and once that that game then uh, that coin then has a password on it, which unlocks um, the post visit part of the website, so they can go back online, learn more about the people, um, the events that they encountered along the way, and it allows us to really contextualize that on-site experience. So that's kind of the model we've developed is kind of the single narrative online, on-site, online experience. So we all come back to this question, so why? Why a game? And, and it's, for us it's why a game, but it's also kind of why this model. Um, as I said, we wanna, one of the things we want to do is drive on-site visitation. Um, and with things like gaming, if we can engage people before they come, then we can get them to want to actually come play on site. Um, so it's a great way to be able to set up the experience and really uh, try to convince people that they would want to come play. And the nice thing with the game is, as I said, we've done three of these. So every year we're launching a new game. So that means there's a new experience on site. I think a lot of um, museum guests might say, well, you know, if the museum doesn't change it, there's nothing new. Why should I go back every year? And we're now seeing people coming back um, to play each new game. Um, so that's been great to sort of say, yes, we have something new every year. There's a new experience. Um, it's also a way, in terms of the online pre-visit component of the game, to prepare guests for the visit. Um, so this is kind of the, the simple map interface um, for the game. And, but it essentially represents Williamsburg. So we're teaching sort of the geography of the town. Um, and as you see, like, as, they, as the questers solve certain tasks, more of the sites within the town unlock. Um, so we're able to teach them not only about, a little bit about the layout of Williamsburg, which I think for some guests can be very overwhelming when they arrive. It's quite big, it's 300 acres. Um, so help them to, to have a sense of the site. Um, we also, through the tasks that they're doing, teach them some of the, the different techniques for deciphering um, the messages that they have to, so they learn on, online and then that's all being reinforced in the on-site game as well. Um, and all of those techniques are based on methods we know were used during the American Revolution. Another reason we wanted to think in terms of the on-site part of the game was to help to create an itinerary for guests once they were here. As I said, if, if for people who are coming to Williamsburg for the first time, Sometimes it's challenging to know where to even begin because it is such a large place, but by sort of thinking about the geography of the town, the game, we could structure something that would help to guide people who, who might want a little structure to their visit to be able to sort of take them through the town. Um, you know, we, we sort of deliberately select sites so that it's kind of a logical path through the town that we're not sending people from east to west and then back. Um, so we have to think very kind of geographically. Um, but it does help to really structure the visit uh, and give them a way to kind of a framework for exploring the town and understanding a little bit more about what they're seeing and doing. We also wanted to create something that was immersive, that really created a role for guests to take on. So they were just passively watching the experience and visiting sites, 
but they were actually being asked to be a spy and to take on that role and to be the hero in the game. I think that's one of the appeals of games is that you are, uh, as the player, become the hero um, as you work to, to solve the mystery. Um, so in this case, as a spy, you are being asked to help save the American Revolution, and, and it all lies on you as the player to be able to do that. Um, we also create a new kind of educational experience. I mean, first and foremost, this is all based on research. We have a team that does a lot of historical research that goes into the game. We use um, replicas of actual historical documents, so we're able to get people, we kind of force them in some ways to have to read historical documents, um, which is, you know, can be challenging to do because they've got to look for information. So in this case, uh, in, the, in this RevQuest Alliance Unicorn, which is our second game, they had to look at different playbills that are posted outside of our theater site um, and look for information. So we can get people, get the, get our guests to look at things in new ways, things that you'll see, even if they've been there 10 times, um, we're, we're getting them to look at things differently and have to really evaluate and understand. As I said, we also wanted to find a way to incorporate technology, um, since we know, especially for younger audiences, this is a very engaging as part of their daily lives and, and it's all sort of hit home on our the first day we launched our first game um, at the resolution I was talking to a mother of two teenage daughters and they she said they were kind of skeptical about wanting to play and as soon as they heard that texting was involved they said yes <laughs> and they loved it so you know if we can create something we can use the technology that kids are used to using every day um, and engage them and have them learn through that technology I mean that's been I think one of the, the best features in terms of being able to reach them and, and as I said, get them involved in, in trying something new. In terms of the post-visit part of it, we can then contextualize what they saw on site. It gives us the opportunity we continue the story uh, online after. So once they finished, we're able to then, in a way that we wouldn't necessarily be able to do as part of the on-site visit, we can really explain what happened to the people that you encounter with this in history, you know, what is the story based on? How do we know that this happened? So you get to find out kind of, you know, for us this game is set in 1781, but what happens to these people after 1781? That would be very difficult for us to address as part of the on-site visit, but we can do that online. And then it also continues the visit. It means that they're staying engaged with us, um, that they're able to kind of keep thinking about what they saw. Um, so that's another reason we kind of thought of this online, on-site, online. Uh, model that we're using. So in terms of audience, when we first started developing the game, we were aiming it at 8 to 12 year olds with their family. So it's meant to be a family experience. Um, but then we soon learned we would have sort of couples coming up with no kids and they said, well, can I play? <laughs> and we said, absolutely. So we realized that there was an appeal to a much wider audience. Um, so really we say it's, it's really geared toward 8 and older, um, you know, but it's a family experience, and so younger kids, even you know, if they're getting assistance, they can do certain things. So it's really meant to be um, for any age group. You know, we found that that it said most there are a lot of people will get, you know, who want to try out this kind of experience. And so we we really started to think about it more broadly with the more recent game that it that there's a greater appeal than just for kids. So in terms of developing the game, we have um, kind of a core team dedicated to doing the research to thinking about the game that includes technology specialists for the online part. 
Um, it includes um, historian for making sure that we're all grounded in the, the history content. Uh, it includes program um, development people who, who do our on-site programming and how do we incorporate that and, and fit it into the overall um, sort of visit experience. So we have a core team that really sits down and starts to think about kind of how to put the game together. Um, in terms of when we've all been talking about budget, um, our budget for RevQuest The Black Chambers is pro it was probably about $100,000, but a lot of that, probably 75% of that is game material, so there's, there's actually supply and demand. Um, this summer we had over 28,000 people play, so we've had to reorder materials, so 75% of that is, is the game materials themselves, the, really the cost that have been involved, for us at least. So, you know, it's sort of balancing, the more people you have playing, the more materials you need, so there's a little bit of trade-off there. Um, in terms of thinking about how we develop the game, some of the challenges and considerations, one is trying to figure out the right level of difficulty, and when you are so familiar with your own site, having to think about it from a guest perspective is challenging, but yet it's actually a great exercise for us to have to sort of walk, walk around and look at things in a new way. Um, but it's really trying to figure out what's, you don't want to make something too hard, but at the same time it does help, it's too easy, people aren't going to enjoy it, they aren't going to feel like they got anything out of the experience. Um, so we do also test it, so once we've written a game, we will bring people in who are willing to let us follow them around and watch them play, um, to make sure that things, the clues are clear, that we aren't building in any assumptions about our own site. Um, we also have to manage kind of the logistics, we don't want to be impacting other guests, who are visiting the site, so we have to think about where we are um, putting clues, so we also don't want to be, we try to avoid creating bottlenecks, where we have all of a sudden just tons and tons of people, um, you know, having to be at one time, and um, at the same time, the um, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, fit it into other programming and the timing, so all these things will need to be taken into consideration. Troubleshooting the technology is also something we have to go around because um, in a store town, we can't put up cell towers in the middle. We have to check where the technology will work and where it won't. So with different carriers, and um, that's perhaps one of the challenges when we're relying on personal technology is that we can't necessarily help people as much to troubleshoot their own phones. And some, um, you know, so we know how the texting system works. We can provide guidelines on that, but um, it's one of the things that we do need to take into consideration. In terms of benefits, um, we found that it really does increase the overall visit experience. Our evaluation for RevQuest, Lion, and Unicorn, 86% of people said that participating in this experience really increased their um, overall visit experience. Um, so overall, we just really positive feedback, and people have really gotten involved in you know, watching people play and really becoming engaged and looking at things in new ways has been, been fantastic. And then also things like social media where people get people talking about it. Um, is also really great. It teaches teamwork is another thing. Um, so we've, we've seen not only families working in new ways with strangers, trying to work together and, and solve clues, and that's been you know something that we initially expect kind of kind of a barrier between guests and staff. Um, and we're also letting staff be kind of creative and flexible in terms of how they are interacting with guests, and they've responded very positively about taking on the role of helping with the game. So, as I said earlier, having a new experience each year encourages that on-site visitation, um, that there is something new that we can go back and tell our guests that, yes, come back next year for some of the years. So we're already developing our fourth game, uh, which should launch next summer. So, um, you know, it's something that we feel that has gone 
um, very well and really added to the visit experience. And so we're excited about kind of keeping this model going. And in terms of one other sort of future direction, we've been developing a, a virtual Williamsburg, which is an interactive 3D model of Williamsburg in 1776. So I'd love to bring the next step is, is the online part of the game actually into a fully 3, 3D virtual environment with that game component um, and then coming on site. So um, some other exciting opportunities for moving forward. So as I said, we're developing our next game. So maybe I'll have the opportunity to play this game or the next one. So thank you.